So it's nice to take some time to appreciate your efforts on this day of practice as we uh, come towards the end of the day. Um, and many of you have been speaking about different perceptions of time, feelings of time. Uh, so it may feel like you've been here for a very, very long time. Um, and at other times, you know, time can speed up, slow down, do all kinds of strange things on retreat. And uh, I'm really struck. I know many people uh, here are new to retreats. Uh, and also, in many cases, really quite new to, to meditation. So um, I feel really uh, full of admiration, actually, for your courage, you know, this kind of diving in at the deep end uh, that many of you are doing. And, um, and for all of us, as I, I mentioned last night, we're taking away some of our usual supports, you know, uh, being able to phone a friend or you know, but start to read something or watch a film or do something to cheer ourselves up in some way. And so we're very much thrown back on our own experience, on our own resources on retreats. And uh, they do have these challenging uh, elements to them. And so, yeah, I really appreciate, uh, yeah, I really appreciate that effort, that commitment that we've uh, put in together and the way we've supported each other. And so this evening, one of the things I, I'd like to talk about uh, is the climate of our practice. The kind of assumptions or views or underlying um, kind of ideas that might be informing how we practice and what's going on when we come to, to engage in meditation practice. You know, what, what do we think we're doing when we're doing this? You know, what, are the, what kind of project is going on underneath the surface? And so I wanted to begin with a, a reading from Christina Feldman um, that illustrates uh, one way in which this might be approached. So she says, you may be tempted to postpone compassion, feeling that you have to first complete a self-improvement project. You have to fix your anger, your selfishness, your greed, and then perhaps you can open your heart and listen to the cries of the world. But self-improvement can be an endless project. It is an expression of a judgmental belief system in which you deny compassion to yourself. You feel ashamed of your negativity, fear, and the avalanche of pettiness and criticism and believe you have to somehow erase them from your heart. Heroically, you try to banish your anger only to find it replaced by jealousy. You may strive to overcome that and then feel proud of yourself. Pride becomes a new focus of your endeavors to perfect yourself, and then you're horrified to find it replaced by greed. At some point, it may dawn upon you that the entire project is motivated by non-acceptance and idealized notions of perfection. So it's worth seeing and exploring whether this, uh, what we might call this kind of self-improvement ideology or this self-improvement idea can underlie our practice. And so what would that be? It's some idea that maybe, you know, I'm not quite good enough as I am. There's something not quite right with me. There's some flaw. There's something missing, something incomplete, something that needs knocking into shape. And I'm going to come on retreat, and that's part of that project. So I've looked at myself and realized that, you know, this isn't the finished article. 
We need to do better. Prove ourselves. Um, and so then when we do that and we come on retreat, then with that kind of view behind us, the, um, some of the passing patterns and things that go through our hearts and minds, some of the thoughts that are around, they carry an extra pain and an extra weight because we're interpreting them as saying something about me. This is the kind of person I am. I can't believe I'm so judgmental. I never realized that. I can't believe how much resentment I still have or I can't believe I'm so tired or why have I got this mind that just goes off? And he keeps saying gently and patiently, come back to the breath, but I've been off for 25 minutes, half an hour, two hours. And so you can see then with that idea that there's something about me that's somehow not quite right, that needs to be fixed, we're then interpreting aspects of our experience in that way and it can solidify or kind of um, deepen that feeling of not being enough, not being quite right, not having got it all together. And so then we, we interpret things like anger or greed, frustration, tiredness, the wandering mind, interpret them as a personal flaw or as some kind of personal weakness. Um, and as some of you may know, in the, in the Buddhist tradition, there's this teaching on the, the five hindrances. Um, and these are basically that we find ourselves wanting something or not wanting something. You know, reaching out to something that's not here that would make us feel so much better. Pushing something away that is here, feeling aversive. Or feeling restless. Or other times feeling sleepy. And at other times, again, feeling full of doubt and wondering whether this thing's worth doing, whether it's what it's cracked up to be, whether I'm the right kind of person to do it. And one of the things I love to reflect on about these hindrances, these five hindrances, is this is a really quite an old list. You know, this goes back to the Buddhist tradition, you know, two and a half thousand years ago plus. Yeah? People in a very different time, in a very different place, had minds that had these tendencies. And so to me, I, I really love that, because then it's like, oh, okay, if my mind's doing that, it's not, oh, what's wrong with Jake, has these things. But we actually, well, this is part of the human condition, to have a mind that has these patterns in. And so then we can see and begin to, to relate to them a bit more impersonally. As these movements of the heart and mind, these patterns that come and go. And then it already begins to release some of the judgment around them. So this project, is, as Christina says, of, of self-improvement can be really endless. And she so uses this phrase, endless. And uh, one example of this, and this is certainly no criticism of the person I'm going to mention, who is, I have full of admiration for. Um, but I was watching the, um, the Commonwealth Games uh, recently and then the European Championships. I like athletics. I don't know if you do. Um, but um, there was, they were talking about Mo Farah, who I, again, I absolutely, you know, full of admiration for. Um, and then, but they were talking about just how, how disappointed uh, he was and how difficult it was for him not to be able to compete in the Commonwealth Games. And the sense of having let people down and, you know, not quite have got it together, not being, you know, hadn't quite reached his goals or the image and the, the sense that he'd set himself. 
And I was watching that and thinking, wow, even Mo has <laughs> those feelings, you know. Um, and that, again, made him, you know, his humanity was really quite, quite striking there. And I was thinking at that time, it doesn't seem like, well, you know, hang on, I'm the double Olympic champion and countless world champions and all the amazing things he's done. It doesn't seem to be a consolation in that way. That if we get that idea, I've got to be better, improve, more. We can see how it can be endless. You know, I won't talk about athletics too long, but I don't know if you also know. Mo was eighth in the London Marathon, and a few years ago I did the London Marathon. I, I certainly wasn't eighth, uh, but I interpreted it as a great achievement, fantastic. And yet for him, eighth, oh, you know, not good enough. <laughs> All these Kenyan guys in front of me. Um, so it's just interesting to see, and again, there's certainly no criticism of that, but if we interpret our life as we are trying to be someone who's got it together, who's good enough, is, is really, that's it, I've really got it cracked, I'm perfect now. You can see that it just, it, it is literally endless, because we achieve one thing, or have one identity, make certain successes, but then there's always more. And so... Carried in a certain way, there can be this feeling that it's never enough. I'm never enough. And then we can bring that on retreat. You know, it might be a moment of, of really feeling very peaceful for, you know, for some moments, some minutes. And then it fades. And then we think, oh, hang on. Not good enough. Let's get that back. Sometimes on retreats, people have these very you know, profound uh, experiences. Their body feels full of energy and bliss and mind's absolutely calm, still. And you think, yeah, this is what all those hours of sitting with those painful knees have been about. And of course the next thing we notice <laughs> is we want it back. How can I get that again? How can I hold that? How can I create an identity around that? How can I be a person who just lives like that all the time, floating through life with bliss? That would be good. But you can see, whenever, it's, whenever it comes from, again, in, in the Buddhist tradition, we call this the sense of, of becoming. Whenever we're becoming, we're trying to be someone, to be, uh, you know, sort of construct an identity that fixes around certain states of mind, certain states of the body, that there's always a struggle within that, because what we're fixing around is changeable. We're trying to hold on to something that by its very nature can't be held on to. And so we begin to wake up to the way that that, that building of identity, the, the kind of clinging around that, the trying to construct a sense of a me who's good enough. Uh, that we, we just can't do it. But then in a way, that, this is a freeing thing, because then we can begin to see that pattern. Oh, okay, well maybe, maybe I don't need to do that. Maybe I can be with the passing patterns of mind and body, of heart, in a different way. Maybe I can be with my own successes and failures in my own way. All the relativity of our ups and downs, successes, failures, pleasures and pains. So these reflections brought to me um, a few kind of paradoxes that 
I like to explore and think of some from time to time. And the first one of these was this um, idea that there's more to life. There's more to life than this. You know, when you have that. And then I was thinking, what, what do I think of that idea? There's more to life. And, and I was realizing that that might come from some very, very different places. I mean, I think that sometimes that feeling of there's more to life might be really quite an intuition. And that intuition might lead to, let's say, us coming on retreat or starting to practice. If we find ourselves frazzled all the time, overwhelmed by burdens, you know, just like our life is spinning around and we really don't know what we're doing and we just feel, ah, there must be more to life than this. We can see that there's a kind of intuition there. But then we can also see how there's more to life. Might be, if we hold it in this self-improvement view, you know, that there's always got to be something more, something different, something better. A feeling that we can never rest, be at ease, be content, sense of completion. Um, I find it interesting to hold those things in our practice. And we often talk about these, these paradoxes. Of, at times practice is said, you know, we say things like, well, there's really nothing, nothing to do. We're not trying to create or become anything. We're just settling into the, this moment. <coughs> breathing with what's here, being with what's here, opening to what's here. And yet other times practice is spoken about as a, as a path that unfolds over time. Where we put in effort and there's fruits that appear. And so I think one of the things that we become more and more comfortable with are these kind of paradoxes. And we can see how, how they can be held in different ways. The feeling that, you know, it's already here, there's enough, nothing to do. can be, in its own way, a kind of closing down. A closing down of possibility, a closing down of aspiration. But also the time, the feeling that practice is always, you know, what's next, what's different can also then drift into this endless sense of, ah, so it's always somewhere else, it's always the next moment, the next retreat, the next year. So, my reflection here really is to invite this idea that what if practice is not about becoming anything at all. This whole idea of self-improvement, of becoming more wise, more compassionate, less angry. Becoming, becoming, becoming. What if it's not about becoming at all, but more about relinquishing, about letting go, about putting down. And then at times about perhaps realizing, realizing a a stillness, a peace, a freedom uh, that's already here. This is the thing so it's like it's not like we're we're trying to become more, better, different, but realizing something that's already here that we can really rest in more and more deeply. I had this uh, strange image come into my mind this afternoon. I don't know. I don't know if you find this, I never know when I, I read this or heard this or somebody said it years ago, but these kind of things pop into our minds today. Um, 
but it, it was this idea of, of doing the ironing. I don't know why. I had this, this kind of image of doing the ironing in a very angry way. You ever had that experience? Probably when you're resenting the, doing the ironing. And you're kind of doing this, and you're sort of really, you know, gripping the iron really hard, and the fist is tense, and the arm is tense, and then you're doing this, and then probably thoughts going, why do I have to do the ironing? How much more of this has got to do? And really putting a lot of effort into it. And then you might, at that time, just, you kind of realize that you're making a lot more stress and difficulty out of this task than really needs to be done. There's a gripping that can be released. We can hold the iron softly. You know, actually the iron is a heavy thing and it's a hot thing. And that heaviness and the, the heat of it actually does most of the work. <laughs> it's not actually that we're having to kind of do this. So then we can just relax a little, let the arm be more at ease and just then move. And then, you know, we're just doing the ironing in that way. And for me, it's a kind of, it's a kind of image. And I notice this many, many times in life when you can feel in those moments, what are those moments when there's too much? There's a tightening around, a tensing around, a gripping, a grasping. And it's, like, it's just like that thing when we're doing the ironing like that. We don't even know we're doing it. And then it's that moment we wake up, hang on, there's a holding on here <sighs> that can be released. The holding on that can be released. So again, this is the practice, not about becoming something, but maybe about putting something down. And I think one of the reasons it, it can be tough or difficult, challenging at times, is because the, so much of the holding is unconscious. We don't even know we're doing it. We're just aware it's kind of painful. And then, ah, a moment of, of release, of relinquishment. So we can feel this kind of unnecessary holding, a way of life that pushes and pulls. It's very <laughs> stressful. It's what, again, in the tradition we call dukkha. Uh, suffering, stress, struggle. And we can see how it's born of this, again, what we call tanha, craving, wanting to hold on or push away. This kind of push-pull relationship with life. So if we see practice then not so much of what we're going to become, what we're going to uh, develop, this kind of growing sense of, of self around it, and more as what we're letting go of. Um, we can think in terms of letting go of what traditionally called the fetters. So as we um, deepen in the practice and, and explore the practice, it's not described as, as, as a practice of gaining, of acquiring but of, of letting go progressively of these fetters. And the first three of these are called self-view, um, attachment to rites and rituals, and doubt. So these are the things that are said to go as we practice the, the path. Um, and so this self-view, again, is really central to this. Now how do we relate to the thoughts, and feelings, sensations, the body. Are we relating to them as a sense of, this is me, this is mine? Yeah. Or as we're beginning to see them more and more as impersonal, things that come and go. Yeah.
you take the example of a quite a strong emotional pattern that arises. We're seeing in meditation, sitting in meditation, walking, or just being around, uh, and we notice there's a lot of frustration. So when there's a lot of self-view, then we can feel we, we then build something out of that. It's not just there is this frustration, but we've become, I am a frustrated person. I am frustrated. Why is this happening to me? As we begin to let go of the self-view around it, again, it's more like a pattern. And we can begin to explore what does that feel like? What are the elements, the components that make it up? It isn't something so solid. It's certainly not some essence of me. And we see there's certain thoughts around it. You know, that was unfair, that was disappointing. So then we can notice those thoughts. Certain sensations in the body around it. A tightening, a tensing in the shoulders. And this certain emotion to it, a kind of pushing away feel to it. And we can begin to feel it has these components. We can notice it, we can be aware of it. And we can begin to step back and gain some perspective. So rather than that becoming who we are and how we see the world that governs us, how we speak and think and act, it's something we can begin to reflect on and make space. Ah, so there's some frustration. We can be with it, breathe with it, soften around it. And we see that it has this nature, that it comes and goes. Yeah. It's around and then it's gone. And so in this, this different relationship to we can see it can't be our essence, it can't be me. The essence of Jake is frustration, frustrated, angry person. Because we can see there's this capacity to, to witness, to be aware of, to notice without being governed by. Yeah? So we can see it's more and more of a pattern. It makes life so much easier when we begin to sense and feel this space around things. And space too around, around our thoughts. Somebody said something to me a few weeks ago, which I found very, very moving, actually, really uh, touched me. And she was describing her practice and feeling this sense of some spaciousness around thoughts. Um, and she'd noticed, in fact, that when she, woke to, when she woke up in the morning, there was a thought, you know, I'm really, I'm not sure I want to continue living. A really strong thought like that. I'm not really sure I want to continue living. But what she was describing is that she was able to recognize that as a thought. It wasn't something she had to believe. It wasn't a truth. It wasn't some kind of absolute statement. It was a thought that came from a particular state of mind that it's, in its own way had its, um, you know, something brought it into being. It would also fade. She was reflecting on it some hours later and that state of mind was now absent. And... Uh, yeah, to me, it's, it, I mean, this practice is literally quite life-saving. Because you can see the difference between that thought being seen through this lens of self. This is true, this is absolute, this is me, this is a fact. My life is not worth living. To actually, wow, there's, there's some space around that. Something that comes and goes. And so liberating to begin to release our 
self-views, our identities, our fixed views of who we are. And again, many of you were describing that in the, the groups today. One of the lovely things about being in silence. You know, when we speak, we're often presenting a particular view of ourselves and a particular version of ourselves. And there's this um, a sociology book, I don't know if you're familiar with it, called The, the Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. It makes me think about you know, how we do that. You know, speak and be a particular kind of person. And when we're in silence, so, so much of that, you know, we, we're just not having to do that as much. We're not having to identify with our roles. And some of you, again, people describing who in other situations are teachers, and then in this role there, become more like the student. And certainly for me, that's true as well. You know, in this particular role, in this particular occasion, I happen to be in this role of teacher. But I know if I grasp that as some identity, the place of suffering. You know, you try and fix around that I'm a teacher. <laughs> you know, it's a role. It's, a, it's something to do on this occasion, and then other occasions it doesn't. It doesn't manifest. And conditions are not there for that role to be there. It's not some essence. It's not some identity not something to congeal around, something that comes and goes. So also, as well as the, the self-view being released, there's this attachment to rites and rituals. Um, I think in some ways this, we can interpret this in, in particular ways. We begin to see this as uh, almost like a sort of magical thinking. If I can just do this enough, if I can just be with my breath enough, if I can just... Uh, you know, sit for so many hours a day, that in itself is somehow going to be liberating, that's somehow going to be releasing. Um, a very fixed idea of something I need to do in order to feel okay. And also the, this fetter of doubt uh, said to be released. And again, I think this is a very interesting thing to explore in our practice when this feeling of, of doubt arises to, to explore that, to investigate. And there can be these moments in practice when we really, really see clearly. Really see clearly. And that's the, the condition for this doubt to, to weaken, to lessen, to be, to be let go of. So when we're talking about doubt in this sense, it's not kind of saying, you know, be a believer, sign up to something. I have no doubts at all. I mean, sometimes somebody said to me, I have no doubt about something. I might, I might be a little bit suspicious of them. <laughs> you know, if they had some kind of rather false certainty or they were um, holding on to or clinging on to a particular belief system. You know, I don't, I'm beyond doubt. <coughs> Sounds a bit dangerous. <laughs> Um, but I think this is, this is pointing to something else, a, a real clear seeing of certain truths. Um, so we can see in our life, sometimes you notice life has this rather circular pattern where we can invest so much in something. And we can feel this um, emotional movement to say, if only I had this, everything would be okay. If only I was in that situation, I would just have this sense of completion. 
You know, if only I had this possession, was in this relationship, had this particular house to live in, had this situation, had this success, this achievement, if only I had that, then there would be this sense of completion. And I think um, one of the ways in which doubt can be released is when we really see time and time again that, you know, this is a pattern. And the, the tendency then to invest, to over-invest in any particular circumstance, any particular experience, any particular person, you know, we can begin to, to really let go of that. You know, maybe, maybe I can come back to Mo Farah as part of my reflection in that. You know, even if I was a double Olympic champion and famous and such a lovely guy like he is, <laughs> even then, you know, it can be this this wanting, this what's more, what's better, what's next, what's different. You know, so we can see every condition that we might want to to fixate on. You know, if you had that experience of getting a new job you know often when we get a new job yeah fantastic so happy i'm going to celebrate <coughs> condition of being in a new relationship wow it's wonderful the honeymoon period yeah having a new house or whatever but you know this 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 feeling that we can get when we're, it's like we're taking birth in some kind of condition this is the thing so happy and but when we we've been around these circles time and time again we can begin to see through, we become in quite a positive sense, disillusioned. Disillusioned. So normally so disillusion is a, is a negative thing. Oh, I'm disillusioned by this. <laughs> but you think, take it literally, we're, our illusions are released. Yeah, our illusions are released. That there's somehow some perfect relationship, perfect situation, perfect something that's going to deliver. And reflecting on this is not... I don't know if it begins to sound depressing to you, and it, it, really, it really isn't, because we can see that there's, there's a... Uh, actually, we, we didn't need any of those things to be perfect, shiny, after all, at all. And again, back to that reflection, this feeling that in some ways it's, it's always already here. Yeah. I don't want to get too metaphysical about that. I want to people, what's already here? Where is it? Can I measure it? Let me get my scientific instruments out. <laughs> but for me, I like it as a, as a reflection. Of why it's, all, it's already here. And so then you can feel that that searching, the questing, the reaching out for something, the feeling, oh, there's something missing. That there's something illusory about that. That that very searching, the very questing, the very reaching for what's different, better elsewhere. You know, there, there, there's something obscuring in all of that. And so we can, we can relax, we can release. And then that leaves us with more freedom. You know? And then we can engage with our work, with our relationships, with our houses with uh, experiences, w without this over-projection, without this over-investment and the inevitable disappointment that follows from that. There's, there's a, a freedom and an ease of being in, in all situations and with all things. So again, just to 
um, reflect a little bit on if we're um, letting go of this self-improvement model of practice, what other kind of things might be helpful? And one thing I'll just mention briefly, uh, some of the things um, actually spoken about by uh, John Kabat-Zinn, if you're familiar with John Kabat-Zinn's writings, and he talks about the, some of the foundational attitudes that we can bring to our practice. So I'll just mention uh, a few of these. Um, and the first which he, he talks about famously is, is a non-judging uh, perspective, a non-judging awareness. And it's even become quite a famous and well-rehearsed um, well definition of, of mindfulness, you know, awareness that arises in non-judgmental present moment awareness. And we can see really how that category of judging our inner experience can be, again, very, very stressful. Because if we sit here to, to meditate, sit here to be with our experience, and we're immediately there, it's like with a big club. You know, which, okay, I'm going to sit here now. Which bits are okay and which bits are not okay? Uh, thought arises. May all beings be happy. Fantastic, I'm getting somewhere. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's great, that's good. Next thought arises. Oh, person next to me is shuffling a lot. Don't like that. Okay, oh, that's a bad thought. Judge that one. Hammer that one down. Sitting a bit more, you know, thought, lovely feelings in the chest area, tingling sensations, opening, saying, oh, it feels rather nice. Opening, feeling, that's good. And the next minute there's a pain in the knee. It hurts. Twinge in the back. No. You can see, again, if, if we're like that, they're sort of waiting with our experience with a big club. You know, this is acceptable, this is unacceptable. That, that way of being with our experience can be stressful. So there's this, what well, again I was referring to as this welcoming quality that allows, that can be there, that can be with our experience. And this uh, non-judgmental quality doesn't mean, of course, that there's not a discernment there. And it's one of the, as we explore that a little more, I mean, our presence, our mindfulness is also able to, to recognize, to discern you know, that which is wholesome, that which leads to happiness, freedom, peace, liberation, and that which is, it was unwholesome, it can be there too. It's, so it's not a kind of blank, a blankness. But this, this quality that welcomes can be with non-aversive quality to our experience. Again, it's another paradox. I don't know if you find that, and you've reflected on this before, but sometimes we say about a person, that that's a person with really, really good judgment. The ability to be discerning and judgment in that sense, a very wholesome quality. And yet at other times you might think, ah, oh, you're being really judgmental. <laughs> so sort of, again, we can tease out these different feelings, that, that discernment, that quality that recognizes wholesome and unwholesome is quite different, I think, than what he means here by this non-judgmental sense. When the judging mind just races away, we can realize how, how mechanical that can be, how that really leads to those mechanical reactions of holding on and pushing away. Yeah? This thing going on all the time, you can feel the, the struggle in that. So again, we can see, we can reflect, we can notice those reactions. 
without being so caught up in them. Another of these foundations that he mentions is a sense of trust. And so one way I might interpret this is uh, an assumption that we can encourage and invite in to our practice of a basic wholeness, a basic health. And, you know, another way of uh, expressing this in the Buddhist tradition is when, when we talk about um, you know, the Buddha nature. So we can talk about this, this nature of wisdom and compassion that's, that's here that, of course, yeah, it can be obscured, it can be covered over, there can be clouds that make it difficult to see or to shine through. But a feeling that there's this wholeness that's there. Um, and we can see how this is a very different mindset from the mindset of not enough, deficiency, something to be fixed, something that needs to be built, something that's unacceptable, that needs to be eradicated, something else that needs to be created. Feeling, yeah, there may be things that are obscuring this sense, but there's a, a wholeness that we can begin to trust. And that gives us our practice, again, a certain fearless quality. Now, I don't know if you've had that feeling today, whether there's this habit of, of judging your practices. That one in the morning was really good. And I was able to stay with the breath for so many minutes, but in the afternoon that was a disaster. It went really badly. Uh, or that other one, my mind was just so busy and distracted. Yeah. Um, but again, this, this, this habit of categorizing, judging, have I got it together? You know, is it good enough? Is it not good enough? But we can feel this, this basic attitude of trust. So within the mind that's busy, or the mind that's tired, or the mind that wanders, the body that hurts and aches, the fantasizing and the daydreaming and things, but we're not, we're not seeing all of that as some kind of flaw, but a trust in a basic wholeness. It gives practice a very different feel. Again, you can explore this if you practice in those different ways. You know, I'm really trying to be with the breath, and there's all this stuff getting in the way. And this feeling, oh, okay, there's a basic wholeness, a basic completion that's already here. And can I be with that, settle into that? Okay, so the mind's wondering, just come back to it. And uh, the final one of these foundations I'll just mention briefly is, is of letting go. And uh, letting go is illustrated by, again, a very famous uh, image of, of a monkey trap. I don't know if you're familiar with this image of a monkey trap, but apparently this is uh, something that people use to, to capture the monkeys. And basically how it works is that you have a, um, a, a coconut, and they make a hole in the coconut, and then they kind of attach the coconut to something. And then they might put some food, say a bit of banana or something, in the, in the monkey trap. And so what the monkey does, it comes along and sort of sees that nice bit of banana, um, and the hole is just big enough for it to put its hand in. And of course it grasps this food and makes a clenched fist. And then it's trying to sort of get out and get the food out. But while the fist is clenched, it can't do it. Yeah? 
because the, the hole is, is not wide enough to allow the fist out. Of course, if it was able to just release, let go of the food, then it can be released. But uh, for me, it's really something quite tragic, quite poignant about this, that apparently that they, they don't do this, that they hold on, continue to grasp. The very holding, the gripping, the grasping is what keeps that captured, the imprisonment there. And we can feel, yeah, there's a, the letting go. So letting go is perhaps not something we can do as a matter of will. This is the tricky thing about letting go. It's like we can say letting go, letting go, letting go. I think, oh, great, I'm going to let go, sit down. <laughs> um, it seems to me letting go is more something that we allow to happen. So it's a very interesting question. What are the conditions in which letting go occurs? What are the conditions in which release happens? Maybe I can return to my, my image of the rather aggressive, stressful ironing that I mentioned earlier on. <laughs> that it seems to me that what happens is sometimes when we really notice, we really pay attention and we can see the tension we become aware of the holding on. We become deeply aware of the holding on. As we're deeply aware of the holding on, then that's the condition sometimes for the release, for the letting go, for the relinquishment. Yeah. So we, we pay attention in our practice, we notice. And then we can have these moments where we realize that there's been this clinging, this holding, that we just, just hadn't been there. hadn't been recognized. And in that moment of recognition, there can be a moment of release. And sometimes it can feel like, again, if uh, you have this experience of being in a room with a buzzing fridge. <laughs> fridge is just buzzing in the background. And then all of a sudden it stops. And it's like, Actually, you didn't really notice that, <laughs> that this thing was there, but suddenly some kind of buzzing <coughs> thing in the background has just stopped. And at times our practice can be like that. And suddenly, it almost, sometimes it feels like they're, they're almost moments of grace, like a moment of ah, some stillness, some peace, where something different opens up. And again, as I said, it's not something we can will, it's not something we can make happen. But we're practicing, we're paying attention, being aware of the body, being aware of the breath, being aware of the thoughts and feelings. And just this noticing. And through the noticing, through the recognizing, making space for the letting go to happen in its own time. So let's just sit uh, quietly together to allow the words of the talk to be absorbed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.